0: The Holy Gospel according to Mark chapter 9. Glory to you, Lord. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed, than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot costs you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye costs you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm never dies, and the fire is never quenched. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I know a pastor who was meeting with his evangelism committee, and they were trying to schedule and invite a friend to church Sunday, and the pastor asked if there were any Sundays that didn't work. And one member of the committee said to him, I think really anything would be just fine except for tear your eye out Sunday. (laughs) And she was talking, of course, about that second paragraph of today's Gospel text, which I mean, what's a person supposed to do with that, right? By way of confession, and what I'm confessing is probably cowardice. I want to tell you that what I've tended to do with it over the years is ignore it, and actually um, sometimes even tear it out. Um, not even read that paragraph. My thought was, if you if you read it, you got to say something, and I didn't want to say something, so I just didn't even read it, and then I would preach. Uh, I am pretty sure I've always done this, Uh, preached on the first paragraph, which preaches pretty well, really, um, follows immediately, actually, from last week's sermon text, if you were here which which you remember when the disciples got into this argument about which of them was the greatest of them and then Jesus told them that in his kingdom the greatest of all are the servants of all, the first of all are willing to be last of all and then he took that little child in his arms and and he said essentially don't don't be climbing ladders to try to get above others, get down off of the ladders and reach out to the needs of others, the needs of the world's little ones and in doing so you will find me and in finding me you'll find the Father. It's right after that text that, that uh, today's text picks immediately up, which means that Jesus has just stopped talking. And he still has that child sitting on his lap when his disciple John, in kind of a reminiscence of the Old Testament lesson, if you heard that connection, jumps in with a combination of, of tattling and bragging. Teacher, he says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, because he wasn't following us. John, obviously, when Jesus had just been saying the things he had just been saying, was hearing wah, 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 right? Because here we go again, with Jesus' followers once again, not even on the same planet with Jesus, and what he had been talking about, they once again are on our planet, where the world is divided into those who are us and those who aren't, those who are them, and them's fighting words. And I just about can't picture this scene without Jesus rolling his eyes like I would have, but he probably didn't. But what he did do is tell John and the others that though people have not just along religious lines, but also along political and patriotic and cultural and racial lines, turned God's good world into the world we live in, this world with almost nothing but uses and them's yelling at each other, that is not the world that is the world God means it to be. For God's good world is a place where we realize that all who do good, all who do good, and by good I mean more than just for us, may not be one of us, but they are one with us and one with God because good, true good, all good is of God and therefore good is a good thing no matter who's doing it and no matter who's getting credit for it. Dwayne Dalen, the senior pastor I first served with as an associate pastor in Lake Mills, Iowa, died last week. And Dwayne and I could butt heads, and once in a while we did. And uh, it wasn't impossible for him once in a while to drive me absolutely nuts, and sometimes he did. I'm sure it never went the other way around. (laughs) But I respected him, and in the end I came to deeply love him. Dwayne, before me, had some really strong associates serve with him, whom he allowed to be strong, to do some good things on their own, and to get full credit for doing those things. There are other senior pastors and other senior leaders in other places in the world, I believe, who talk a lot about strength, but are actually weak, because they're too insecure to allow those beneath them to be strong or successful, lest that somehow seem to diminish them. Dwayne believed and treated me in a manner consistent with the belief that anything truly good done by any one of us was done by all of us and was good for all of us. In other words, he understood the first paragraph in the Gospel text and also understood what Moses said to Joshua with the same situation in the first reading. And I tell you that story because I think in this world so entrenched into so many camps of so many versions of us's and them's we need to understand it too. We need to understand that Christ calls his church to do good in the world and anybody in the world who for whatever reason or whatever place does anything. That Christ would call good is not our enemy, but our partner. I don't know if they're doing it this year, but last year at LCM, um, on, they did a number of partnership events. The Lutherans and, and the Secular Society of the University of Iowa. They got together, they ate, and they did good. They partnered. All right, that said, I decided this week... I'm almost 63, and it's time that if I'm ever going to do it, i got to do it or I won't ever get it done. So I read the rest of the gospel text. And I'm going to try to say a few things about that second paragraph. I'm regretting this almost already. <laughs> Not really. Where Jesus, still with that little child on his lap, right, says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better... For you, if you had a great millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Okay. Welcoming, encouraging, leading, showing little ones to faith is clearly a way important thing. Got it. That's something Jesus has clearly said before. But now he goes to the flip side to say something more clearly than any of us wish she would, and that is that the opposite of that, being any kind of a stumbling block to a little one and her faith is a way, 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 way seriously bad thing, as in if you do that, quote, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea to drown, of course. And then before the disciples or us even have a chance to say, like, seriously, Jesus? He doubles down and then triples down and then quadruples down. And my gosh, how do you even begin to take all of this seriously when he says, quote, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Well, talk about stumbling blocks to those who want to believe in Jesus. These verses sound like stumbling blocks to me. And they're coming from Jesus. Not only In the harshness he commends, absurd harshness he commends, to people to direct toward themselves if they've sinned. But then also in the in the hellishness of the harshness, he surely seemingly says, God will send their way if they don't stop sinning. Well, what on earth, what in heaven's name do you make of that? Let's start by making one thing clear. And that is that surely, absolutely, no doubt whatsoever, Jesus means to be understood in these verses not literally, but hyperbolically, in order to make the point that sin, and by sin it does mean sin, literally, not hyperbolically. Sin, sin in the Bible being the condition of of estrangement from God, which leads to lives that have nothing to do with the good desires of God, sin, Jesus clearly says here, is a large font, bold print, capital letters, big deal. And the biggest deal about it is the pain and the destruction that inevitably follow from of it, some of which will be hell to go through. Theologians of different stripes debate whether that last part, that hell part, is literal or hyperbolic. Some look at it as pure hyperbole, and that's that. Some look at it with a literalist literalism there is to talk about, and it even in some cases seems like almost a sort of relish thinking about the hell that will no doubt be coming the way of some people, including some people like a name by name. I want to tell you. And then, of course, there's a whole spectrum of different places where people stand in that sort of conversation, or probably more often, a debate between those two extremes of pure hyperbole and literal literalism. Do you Do you have any any horse in that race? Do you take a stand in that debate? Do you believe there is literally? A hell? Does the Bible teach that literally? And is Jesus here saying that? For some, it's a core tenet of their theology. Like the woman who said to me once, there has to be a hell, otherwise people would sin all the time. I mean, there's no other reason to do anything good except to not go to hell. I'm not speechless often, but I was kind of young then. I remember being speechless in hindsight. I wish what I'd said to her is, uh, I think I know know people who do good not to avoid hell. I I think I know people who do good not to get to heaven. I think I know people who do good good, because it's good. But I didn't say that, and it maybe wouldn't have mattered because her theology seemed quite hell-bent. Others, of course, have different views and theologies on the matter. Many of them point out, and they do so completely accurately, that the Greek word used here by Jesus and translated as hell is the Greek word Gehenna, which is actually and literally a ravine just to the south of Jerusalem, which way back in the day, before um, these Old Testament times, is a place where human sacrifices were offered, and by the time of Jesus, it had become a perpetually smoldering garbage dump for the city, a truth from which some then go on to say that since Gehenna was a literal and real place on earth, so to hell is something experienced on earth, which, well, there are days, right? I actually find that, and I hope you don't find this to be too out there, I uh, actually find there to be at least one thing well hopeful about the thought of hell. I tell you the exact moment when I came to think that. It was after I had watched my father suffer with pancreatic cancer for 13 months until at long last and mercifully in the end he breathed his last And in the end, I remember that I either imagined or I heard, sometimes it's hard to say, God saying then, Reinhardt, come home. Reinhardt's cancer? You go to hell. What I find actually hopeful about the thought of hell is found in the thought that it's not just my dad's cancer, but a lot of ugly things that cause a lot of ugly pain in this world. And heaven can't be heaven unless all of that ugliness doesn't make it there. Unless all of that ugliness is thrown into a garbage pit of forever, where it surely belongs. Of course, that includes some garbage that any truly honest look, I take it myself, will tell me is also to be found in me and in you too, that being the garbage of the sin within me, the psalmist talks about, some of the secret sins, some of the presumptuous sins, the sinfulness of the me within me that needs to not make it to heaven so that heaven can be heavenly. But are there some people Here's really the question, I think. Are there some people who are so entirely garbage, so entirely sin, that they will personally burn in hell entirely forever? Because there's not a damned thing redeemable about them. Now, some say absolutely for sure there's a literal place called hell, and some poor souls will literally spend forever there. It's what the Bible teaches. Some say, oh my no, you're taking things way too literally. What the Bible really teaches is that love and grace will have the last word over all things and all people. Rob Bell makes an extent version of that point in his book Love Wins. In a similar vein, our presiding bishop of the ELCA, Elizabeth Eaton, said in an interview last year, there may be a hell, but I think it's empty. Do a Google search on either Rob Bell's book or Elizabeth Eaton's interview. You will find no shortage of people who will both assure you that those two people both are surely going to be going to hell for what they think. And then at one more place on the continuum, there are those who say that yes, hell is real. But it's not a place of unending, vindictive suffering for unsaved sinners, but rather, and they see some mercy in this, theres it's a place where unsaved sinners will go to perish into nothingness and non-existence for forever, rather than with the saved to know the bliss of of heaven and eternal life for forever. So, of course, what you all want to know is which of those answers is right, right? Which of those answers is the final answer, right? Which, of course, I am now going to tell you, right? Actually, yes. Right. I am. And I'm here to tell you that by telling you that everybody has an opinion, but the answer belongs to God. And God's answer to our questions about sin and hell, God's answer is literally Jesus. Jesus who, in this passage for today, when talking about cutting off arms and tearing out eyes, is surely speaking hyperbolically, not literally, to make a point about sin and the ugliness of the world's sin brokenness. But Jesus who, too, in his own case, would take the seriousness of the world's sin and ugly sin brokenness literally dead seriously not by cutting off a hand or a foot or tearing out an eye but by allowing himself to be cut off literally his flesh torn literally then to be nailed up through his literal hands and his literal feet to a literal cross for sin and sinners Seriously, Jesus, we can't help but say when first reading this passage, and his answer is, yes. For dead, seriously, literally, is what he would be willing to be. And hell, seriously, and I believe literally, is where he would be willing to be found. Why? Because in the end, his answer as literal as flesh and blood to the hell created by all of the world's sin and sinners, including you personally and your sin, his answer, literally, is that he'd personally rather go to hell for you. Then spend any time in heaven without you. Amen.